Thank you, thank you, thank you. You're far too kind. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn Welcome. This is another episode of Pem Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Soboleski, and this episode focuses on managing the pain of laceration repair in children. And this episode is a co-production of the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center, whose mission is to minimize morbidity and mortality of acutely ill and injured children across the emergency continuum. We've developed a multi-episode series all focused on different aspects of pain management across the care environment with content relevant for many members of the patient care team. We will be sharing these episodes on social media, our individual websites, and at the EMSC Innovation and Improvement Center site. More details in the show notes and to come. And so this is ostensibly an episode focused on pain management during procedures in children in the emergency department or urgent care setting. And if I tried to go over every possible procedure that you can do, you get bored, I'd lose my voice. So I'm going to focus on pain control during laceration repair. This is perhaps the quintessential, we're making a trip to the ED with our kid procedure. So why do laceration repairs hurt? Well, uh, you got to scrub the wound, irrigate it, explore it, place sutures or staples, even tissue adhesive burns a little bit. Plus, you're touching and pushing on a sore part of the body. So yeah, laceration repair needs analgesia. So let's talk in turn about pain control and lack repairs and start with local anesthetics. And one might argue that you can pop in a few staples without local anesthetics, and you can, and sometimes parents actually want that, but this is not a podcast episode about toughing it out. It's one about good pain control, and we're not using Brutane here. All right, so the traditional local anesthetics. For most, infiltration of local anesthesia is effective for pain control. The choice of agent depends on the duration of the procedure, need for hemostasis, patient's sensitivity to catecholamines, and known allergies. This can be local subcutaneous injection, topical absorbing therapies, or nerve blocks. Let's discuss them in turn. So subcutaneous injection, this is the classic way to numb a wound. You've got a lot of choices, but I'll go over some of the common ones. You've got 1% lidocaine with and without epi, 2% lidocaine, 0.25% 0.25% bupivacaine with and without epi, procaine 1% only without epi, and there's more, but really let's use 1% lidocaine as a paradigm since it's what most of you will use and it's the most common agent. So local anesthetics are reversible sodium channel blockers. At the nerve cell, this prevents transmission of pain signals by disrupting depolarization. Pain nerves have less myelin than other nerves, so these dilute solutions of local anesthetics hit them more so than the cold nerves, the deep touch nerves, and other types of nerve endings. This also prevents against systemic absorption and harm, but remember that infants do have proportionately less myelin overall, so they have a greater risk of the lidocaine not just impacting pain nerves, but other nerves in the body. Onset to anesthesia is within two to five minutes once the lidocaine is injected into the tissue, and it lasts anywhere from 30 to 120 minutes depending on the amount you put in, the location, and the individual's own metabolism. 
So why do local anesthetics hurt? Well, there's the poke and the burn, right? The poke is the poke of the needle, and the burn or stinging is because you are reaching a nerve blockade and because the drugs are acidic. This is a pH of, of 5 to 7, and this will keep them shelf-stable for 3 to 4 years at room temperature. The addition of epinephrine promotes local vasoconstriction and thus confers hemostasis. Though the old adage is, don't use epi on fingers, toes, nose, ears, lips, and genitals, recent evidence in well-vascularized wounds with good circulation says that epi might be fine. Look for local policies in this regard. People accidentally inject themselves in the finger with EpiPens, and nobody has lost a digit in the medical literature, so that'll give you a sense of, in a well-perfused patient without diabetes or other problems, that Epi's probably fine. 1% lidocaine, the maximum dose is 4 milligrams per kilogram without Epi. Some will say 5 milligrams per kilogram, and with Epi, it's up to 7 milligrams per kilogram. The max dose is 280 milligrams. 1% lidocaine is 10 milligrams per ml, so you get up to, but no more than 28 mls in a big teenager. And remember, that's a lot less lidocaine in a much smaller child. So let's review the technique briefly here. So remember that the skin has an epidermis, dermis, and subcutaneous layers. The nerves that you're aiming to infiltrate in a subcutaneous injection are in the, wait for it, the subcutaneous tissues. So hitting these more proximal nerves effectively blocks pain transmission from the free nerve endings located above in the epidermis and dermis. If you go too shallow, you may not get an effective blockade. So you actually got to inject a little bit deeper. You don't need a big old wheel or peau d'orange under the skin, right? Aspiration is not necessary prior to each infiltration unless the area undergoing local anesthesia is close to major blood vessels. You can inject into the dermis, but this hurts more and doesn't work as well. So what can we do to reduce the pain of this injection? Well, it starts with buffering with sodium bicarb. Remember, I said lidocaine solutions are acidic. So 1 ml of 8.4% sodium bicarbonate to 10 mLs of 1% lidocaine with or without epinephrine. So this 1 to 10 ratio will raise your pH to a more physiologic level of about 7.3 to 7.6. So how do you do this in practice? Well, if your institution has it in the EMR, you can order buffered lidocaine, or you have to order it separately. So you get 1 ml of 8.4% sodium bicarb, plus your lidocaine of choice, so 1% lido with or without epi, 10 mLs. First fill a syringe with the 1 ml of bicarbonate, then add the 10 ml of lidocaine, Flip the syringe over several times to mix them. You don't need to shake it vigorously. This is not like a can of paint um, and label according to your local practices. Other things that can help with the pain of injection, using a small needle that limits the rate of inflow of anesthetic into the tissue. It's a 27 or 30 gauge, smaller poke. Inject slowly, take your time, warm the solution, Cold lidocaine hurts more, so room temperature is great. Fortunately, most of the time, this is stored in, in room temperature. Gentle pinching or vibration adjacent to the site of injection. This stimulates other nerves, thus providing less stimulation to the pain nerves. You can use little things like Buzzy, which is a handheld device. And wait. Remember I said it takes at least two to five minutes to be active, but you want to wait at least seven to ten minutes for the anesthetic to take effect. I set a timer on my watch and plan to come back. Or just do something else, like set up your tray. Just wait. Take your time. 
All right, now let's talk about topical absorbing anesthetics. And the mainstay of what we use is LET, which is lidocaine, epinephrine, tetracaine. It's available as a solution or a gel that absorbs into lacerated skin and can provide excellent local anesthesia. I think the latter, the gel, gets into and stays in the wound better, but local availability is going to dictate what you've got. You can use it anywhere except mucous membranes or poorly vascularized site, like the auricle, genitals, tips of digits, penis, nose. Apply 3 mLs maximum at least 20 minutes, but ideally 30 to 35 minutes prior to wound repair. Putting it in a wound with clot and debris in it um, is not a good idea, so you have to gently wash out the wound before you put in the let. You could have a triage protocol for let application to save time as well. So you take this up to 3 mLs of let, you put it in the open wound, and you cover it with an occlusive dressing like gauze with tape or an adhesive polyurethane film dressing like Tegaderm or Opsite. And then I think you should leave it there for at least 30 to 35 minutes. Document the time of placement in the medical record. It isn't recommended for large wounds, so wounds greater than 5 centimeters or multiple lacerations totaling greater than 5 centimeters. So the amount needed could be toxic, especially in really small children. The evidence will indicate that over 90% of patients with a face or scalp wound will have adequate local anesthesia with let. If you're going to need more than the volume you have, or if the kid doesn't have complete anesthesia, you got to have a backup plan, which is local infiltration injection. Some institutions have EMLA, Elamax patches, but these are not formulated to absorb into lacerated skin. They're only for use in attack skin. So you can put them there before an LP, you can put them there before you inject for an abscess, you can put them there before an IV, but they're not good for laceration repair. And tetracaine, adrenaline, cocaine, yes, cocaine, is a forerunner of let, but it's been phased out because, you know, cocaine. All right, I mentioned I talk about nerve blocks, and admittedly, this is a hard one to talk about via podcast, so I'll just make you aware of the three most useful locations that you can do a nerve block in kids based on where common lacerations are seen. You can use visual landmarks for these blocks. Uh, You can do nerve stimulation or ultrasound, but mostly those are for large blocks and in surgery. So just learn the landmarks and learn how to do these right. So what are some complications of nerve blocks? Well, you can have persistent symptoms of nerve dysfunction, and that might last a few days and could occur in as high as 8 to 10%. This is like tingling or dysesthesias. But generally, these occur with intraneural injection. So if you're careful about your technique, you will limit the risk of these. You can create a hematoma. You could get systemic absorption, and they could have lidocaine allergy. All right, so the nerve blocks that I think are worth learning and reviewing before you go and prepare a laceration include first the mental block. This is the lower lip. It gets the skin below the lip and the chin. And you've got two mental nerves, so you can get the right lower lip or the left lower lip. The best technique is pulling the lower lip out, injecting in the space between the buccal mucosa and the gingiva, right down towards that mental nerve. Right? And that is great for a lower lip vermilion border repair, for instance. The infraorbital nerve will get you the upper lip, lateral nose, lower eyelid, and the medial cheek. So this is great for an upper lip laceration or a cheek laceration. And you can enter, again, through the mouth at the junction of the buccal mucosa and the gingiva and aim for the infraorbital nerve, which is at the midpoint of the lower part of the orbital ridge. 
there's a supraorbital block. And this gets you the forehead and the anterior one-third of the scalp on either the left or right side. There's landmarks in the eyebrow, and you do this by direct injection. And then there's digital blocks. Everybody who works in a pediatric ER should learn how to do a digital block. There's several different techniques, but for finger repair, whether that's a nail bed or just a finger laceration because somebody was trying to make avocado toast and did the pit thing and slipped and cut their finger and came to the ED at one in the morning, digital blocks are fantastic. All right, let's shift gears. So... We talked about local anesthesia, local numbing, managing the pain of the wound as you clean it and put sutures in. Some children understand what we're doing, can participate and get through this, but many cannot, and this really relates to their age and development. So when do you use anxiolysis or procedural sedation? So obviously, you must follow local regulations regarding consent, monitoring, and NPO status. Take a sample history and assess the airway and circulatory status before proceeding with either of these. So if you've got a child that's going to have a minimally painful laceration and they just need some mild anxiolysis, midazolam. If you're going oral, I actually up in the toddlers and below to 0.7 to 0.8 mg per kg. That's above the 0.5 mg per kg recommended dose. They metabolize super fast. Choose a nice round ML number. Your nurses will thank you. For the bigger kids... 0.5 mg per kg with a max of 20 milligrams. You can give midazolam orally, sublingually, or intranasally. Orally and intranasally are the most commonly used ones. I tell the parents that it's like drinking a couple of beers. I think that kind of gets at the heart of what the child will look and act like. Some institutions will use intranasal dexmedetomidine. There is preliminary evidence that suggests that it may be equivalent to midazolam, so more coming on that in the future. Nitrous oxide has analgesic and sedative properties. The onset is less than one minute, and there's less than 20 to 30 minute recovery. So unless you've got a laceration around the nose or mouth, you know, so where you would actually administer the, the nitrous, if your institution has it, it can be a wonderful adjunct to pain control. So if you've got a moderately painful laceration or when movement will interfere significantly with performance of the procedure, like complicated vermilion border laceration, ear laceration, something around the eye, you're probably going to need to consider procedural sedation. So ketamine has sedative and analgesic properties. It can be used as an agent by itself, but you still need to do local anesthetic, especially if the repair is going to take 10 to 15 minutes or longer. So dexmedetomidine and nitrous oxide, and I mentioned both of those earlier, have limited analgesic properties you should still control pain with local injection or let. Propofol, IV midazolam, etomidate do not have analgesic properties and need to be combined with local anesthesia and or additional IV pain medicines. So propofol alone, for instance, would be fine if you've got good local or regional anesthesia. But frankly speaking, most pediatric ERs for laceration repair will choose ketamine, maybe nitrous oxide, to provide procedural sedation for their laceration repairs that require minimal movement or if the procedure is very delicate and challenging. All right, so let's talk about non-pharmacological interventions. And this includes everything from parental presence to preparation to distraction. And whether or not you have a child life specialist and they are the secret awesome super ninjas of the pediatric ER, you can absolutely make use of some or all of these techniques that I'm going to mention to improve the patient and family experience. 
These behavioral and cognitive approaches allow children to be better prepared and to cope with the procedure more ably and can make the difference between having to sedate or not. So parental and caregiver presence, I don't got to tell you that it makes a ton of sense to have the parent or guardian present in the room when you're repairing a laceration with the kid. If you take the parent away from a two and a half year old, they're going to go from not liking you to ballistic in a moment. The technique of desensitization allows for gradual increasing exposure to the procedure over a period of time. Now, admittedly, this is tough to do in a time-compressed emergency department, but you can do this for procedures where you're going to be touching something or manipulating a limb, for instance. Distraction uses age-appropriate stimuli during the procedure, so in an infant non-nutritive sucking. You can use sucrose solution, which in little babies doesn't provide a ton of pain control but may stimulate some opiate receptors. In older children, bubble blowing, listening to a book read to them or music, counting, interactive toys, video games, videos, YouTube for the win, but Baby Shark is outlawed, or even virtual reality. There's multiple randomized control trials that show that distraction has significantly reduced situational anxiety among older children and lowered parental perception of pain and distress during the procedure. You should also always do positive reinforcement. You know, patients should have positive statements and rewards after undergoing a procedure. And then relaxation techniques. This is a calm environment, a single voice. You know, this lets the child focus their attention on one voice and one stimuli. Even multiple people providing reassurance concurrently can stress a kid out because they're trying to figure out who they're supposed to listen to. That adds to the cognitive burden, especially if they're trying to follow your instructions. Child life specialists are experts in these techniques. Call them early and often, right? They aid in forming a trusting relationship between the patient, family, and the healthcare team. They facilitate psychological preparation. They encourage questions from the patient and family, and they can coach and teach coping strategies. Overall, child life specialists lead to reduced anxiety, improve coping, and honestly, in many instances, provide a better family experience and can decrease the need for sedation, which leads to lower risks for the patient and cost savings for the hospital. All right, so I'm going to wrap things up here. Hopefully, this episode will better prepare you to think about using local anesthesia, pain control, non-pharmacologic techniques, and deploying anxiolysis or sedation when you need it for laceration repair in children. I encourage you to use LET liberally. Really get good at learning how to inject lidocaine the right way, buffer it if possible, and if you have them available, consult a child life specialist as early as possible. If you don't have child life specialists, that's fine. You can absolutely still learn to use some of these techniques to help make the experience better for the patient and their caregivers. You can coach families to do it, or other members of the care team with experience can provide assistance. And again, I would like to thank the Emergency Medical Services for Children Innovation and Improvement Center for helping to arrange this episode and the series that we are putting together. To learn more about them and their mission, visit emscimprovement.center. You can email at km at emscimprovement.center or follow them on Twitter at emscimprovement. More details in the show notes. 
If you've got feedback about this episode, you want to hear about other procedures, let me know. You can email me. You can send me a direct message on Twitter. You can leave a comment on PenBlog. You can send the Pony Express in my direction. Any and all feedback is welcome and encouraged. And as they are released, I do hope you check out the other episodes in the series as they provide a full accounting of the many aspects of pain control that we face when dealing with ill and injured children in emergency care settings. For PEM Currents, the Pediatric Emergency Medicine Podcast, this has been Brad Soboleski. See you next time.